0: All right, grab your Bibles, flip to Colossians 3. We are continuing our study on this topic of preeminence from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, speaking of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. And tonight we're talking about Christ-centered living, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Let's stand together to give attention to God's Word. Colossians 3, verse 1. These are the words of God. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things, the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abuse of speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. "...since you put off the old man with its evil practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, But Christ is all and in all. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Father and living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. It is fitting for us to spend some time at the very beginning of this new year to consider a passage like this. Uh, Every new year feels like a reset of sorts as people usually spend their energies resolving to make some changes in their lives. Uh, Perhaps it's a better diet and more exercise or reading through the entire Bible in a year, things we should definitely consider because our physical health and our spiritual health, of course, matters. But this time of year, people are generally predisposed to self-reflection, which isn't altogether bad. In any case, as we begin the year of our Lord, 2023, it is providential for us to be here, I think anyway, in this next section of our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, and that's, the, that's mostly because Paul will urge us to consider the call of Christ-centered living. What is what is that supposed to look like? What, is, what do we mean by Christ-centeredness and Christ-centered living? And what we find here is Paul's most basic Christology, his thinking and theorizing, if you will, his word about Christ. That was outlined in chapter 1, but now we have it applied to the believer specifically here in chapter 3. You'll recall to mind all the way back in chapter 1, verses 15 and, uh, through 20, we had the Christ hymn, In the Christ hymn, the Song of Christ, Paul describes the supremacy, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in two places, one of which is creation and the second is in redemption. And Jesus being before all things, thus holds all things together. So Christ is the head of all things. He has been declared Lord of all. However, he also exercises that headship through his body, that is the church. The bride of Christ. So the fullness of deity dwelt in the Messiah. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in the Messiah, this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and he has made peace, Paul says earlier, through the blood of his cross. So correspondingly, this peace must be applied. If he has made peace in principle uh, in the cosmos, then it has to be applied in some fashion and That's what we're gonna find in our text this evening. All of life, what we think, say, do, and even what we believe is to be anchored in the status that we have in Christ. Um, Most scholars, when they research that phrase, uh, en Christuo in Greek, this in Christ phraseology shows up a lot in Paul's letters, especially in the book of Ephesians. He keeps saying, in Christ, you're in Christ. This is true of you. In Christ so we have this status and the world of course whereas the world would always attempt at every turn to defraud us or rob us or steal from us to steal what we have what we possess in Christ the Christian as a response to that must be resolute in appropriating the benefits of Jesus Christ through the means of grace you think of the proclamation of the word the fellowship of the Saints uh, the baptism the Lord's Supper you think about these means of grace that he's given us we have to appropriate those blessings the Holy Spirit does the job in taking those things and putting them in us in our hearts and we have to 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 be okay with that and we we should love that and we should desire that we should want what Christ has accomplished to be given to us and it is objectively given to you it is a status that is yours but you have to sort of make sure that in concert with the Spirit, your heart is directed towards those things. And that's what we have before us tonight. Now remember that last time, at the end of chapter 2, Paul urges us to resist the appeal of adding anything to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ and something else isn't Christianity. Uh, there are no conjunctions in that doctrine Uh, we don't need christianity and something else Um, christianity and well this is my hobby horse or christianity and this is my fill in the blank so a fortified we talked about this two weeks ago a fortified well-grounded christianity is a christianity that is impervious to false doctrine impervious to any sort of add-ons when we try to add something to christ None of that is needed. The Lord has no rivals at all, so why try to give him some? There is a very real temptation, a very real temptation, even as confessing Christians, to look for additional rules, to look for additional experiences, and and content which creatively, albeit erroneously, attempts to make Christianity more suitable to us. There's a temptation, even as Christians, to try to make Christianity a little bit more, have a little more seasoning to it, a little more flavor. It's not quite to my liking. It didn't bake in the oven long enough, so I need it to be more to my liking. There is a temptation for that. And Paul deals with this temptation by reminding us of where we actually stand. Where we were before Christ, and now where we are that we're in Christ. Henceforth, Paul gives us the tools he gives us the tools for Christ-centered living, and we would do well to heed the authority of the scriptures. So holiness strikes to the root, not the symptoms. Holiness deals with the root, not the symptoms. Let's consider our passage here. So instead of giving ourselves to self-made religion, Paul gives us Christ-made religion. Don't go with the self-made version. That was the end of chapter 2. Now we need Christ-made religion. Verse 1. It says, if, therefore, if, or since you have been raised up with Christ, that phrase, you have been raised up with Christ, builds on the if you have died with Christ back in chapter 2, verse 20. In order to resist our penchant for diluting the Christian religion with religious accessories, everybody uh, everybody wants to accessorize, right? Even our Christianity. In order to to resist that desire, that penchant, that, that temptation, Paul urges us to remember that we have a covenantal identity. The covenantal identity we have by virtue of our baptism in Christ. Based on our being raised up with Christ, we are to keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, seeking and desiring things above is seeking and desiring the throne room of Christ where he rules and reigns over the nations, which is to say the, the Christian receives his or her marching orders from the king. And any, any ethical, any judicial determination that you make in your life, as we grow in spirituality, to be spiritual is to discern good and evil, 1 Corinthians 2, as we do that, we have to be informed by him. I mean, imagine a Christianity that's not informed by Christ. That's the logic here. So we want God's will, not man's will. We want what he wants, not what we want. And rather than worship earthly things, we turn to the head of the body and worship heavenly things. Um, More on that in a second. Furthermore, verse 2, we are to set the mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Indeed, we must have hearts liberated by Christ's rule in order to have minds liberated for obedience. The the Stoics and even some of the other Greek philosophers, they desired a heavenly utopia, Plato's realm of the ideals. Everything's perfect. There's a copy of everything. Everything's perfect up there. They wanted to put their mind to those things in this realm, this metaphysical realm of ideals. And everybody does everyone does everybody has this idea of what bliss is even if you make up whatever you want about after death i i like to think this is what happens after death fill in the blank but everybody does it everybody knows that there is more to what we have in front of us than what we have in front of us but what about the christian well she is to seek the messiah to seek heaven is to seek the messiah to seek the messiah is to seek heaven Things on earth are, are changing moments of fleeting vanity. They're here today, gone tomorrow. That is the message of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. So to try and ascertain the world is to try and catch wind, right? To try to, try to have everything your way. <laughs> That's to try to catch the wind, which is why Jesus told us to lose our lives should we want to gain them. Now, this is not, by the way, an escapist proof text. Set your mind on things above. See, we shouldn't involve ourselves in politics. We shouldn't involve ourselves in, in medicine and health and in business and so on. We, we shouldn't. This is not an, escape, an escapist proof text. To the contrary, it's a text that helps us order the earthly by looking to the heavenly. There's an order to the earthly that needs to be informed by the heavenly. That's what Paul is getting at. So in order to effectively carry out what we're supposed to do here on the earth, we must know what's going on in heaven. Um, Hebrews makes this point about Moses making the tabernacle. Well, it was a copy of, of what was going on in heaven. And so there's this you know, dimensional, not really spatial in that sense, but a spiritual dimension that we are unable to really see everything. Uh, but Christ is in process of restoring all of those things, and he will uh, at the end of history. But don't think that this is an escapist thing. You know, be, be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, that sort of thing. Now the paradigm, by the way, for thinking soberly is found in verse 3. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Out of all the verses, you should have that one underlined and memorized. For you, for you died, You died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. We often think that being born again means being made alive with Christ. And that is true. Being born again and restored by the Spirit does make us alive in Christ. But being born again also means being made dead. You're made dead, actually, before you're made alive. You're made dead in Christ. Um, Meaning this, Christians are, are wrapped up we're constantly wrapped up in this paradigm of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. um, Physical death and final bodily resurrection. Or spiritual death and and a spiritual resurrection, which is what regeneration does for the believer. So covenantally speaking, though, we're wrapped up in this concept. So regeneration means when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, you have the heart of stone plucked out, and you have a heart of flesh placed in, in its place, that is the objective defeat of, 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 one, of sin in one's life. It's objectively done. Sin is, is objectively, finally, in principle, over. Why? Because you've died. You, you died in Christ. So in your baptism, there's a sentence against death, and it's a sentence against sin's ability to condemn you. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin. You're dead to the sin's ability as a law to condemn you and, and, and punish you accordingly. So in Christ, united to him covenantally in baptism, we are dead. We're dead to sin. We're dead to the law's condemnatory presence. We are dead in Christ And as a result of such death, what does he say here? Our lives are hidden with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ. They are kept safe and secure. Remember in the previous chapter, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Your life is hidden in Christ. And that's where you're at. Your life is safely tucked away there. So to this end, if the Christian desires his life, he must find it in heaven tucked away in christ only retrievable in christ so if you want your life you have to lose it and if you lose it you've lost it in christ he has it it's kept pure and unstained there that's where your life is your death in your life is there and that is because christ is there and he is your death in your life so to seek life anywhere else note this is suicidal To try to seek life in anyone else, in the name of Buddha, in the name of of Allah, in the Islamic religion, to to seek your life anywhere else is suicidal because Proverbs reminds us, those who hate me love death. Now we have here in our text a past, present, and future understanding of our union with Christ. Christ died and was buried in the past, 2,000 years ago. And thus you too have in, in the past. In that past, you have died with Christ and you've been raised with him. That's a past event. And we live 2,000 years on this side of the cross, but all of that is, is yours too. You've died with him, you've been raised with him. But in the present, think about it, in, in the present, the Christian has to remember what is already done in the past. We live in the now and we have to look back and say that was done in the past. But what was done in the past is mine today. And we also need to keep in mind that right now this very day your life is hidden with Christ because we're seated with him too. So death and life terminates in and upon Christ. And in verse 4 there's a future element. When in Christ who is our life, when Christ who is our life is manifested, then you will also be manifested with him in glory now there's debate on this particular text it was interesting because some of my favorite commentators didn't really touch on this at all uh, which was shocking to see even david chilton not even reference this verse in his book paradise restored Um, but i take this to actually refer to christ's final coming at the end of history for the final wheat harvest and not a reference to the barley harvest resurrection in AD 70 And I do that for the simple fact that when we see Christ appearing here or his manifestation, it is linked to their manifestation in glory. And that, of course, is a reference to the eternal state, the final resurrection, the final judgment, the final ushering into the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So just a side note on that text. Don't have time to dig any further than that, but you can ask me questions later if you like. So in light of this, dead men are supposed to consider certain things to, in fact, be dead. Dead men are supposed to consider certain things to be dead. And the options before us are this. Think about, go back to chapter 2, verse 13. You have two options. In verse 13 of chapter 2, you are either dead in sin. You note that there in the text. You're either dead in sin. Or go back to chapter 3, verse 5. Or you're dead to sin. You're either dead in sin, or you're dead to sin. Sin ought not to be treated like it's a viable option when one is dead to it. That is Paul's argument here. And that is essentially Pauline Theology 101. You know, how how do we deal with sin in our lives? We're going to talk more later, but how do we deal with it? Well, we have to remember that we have to treat it like it's not a viable option. It's not not a viable option for me to to gossip about this, or it's not a viable option for me to be um, unrighteously angry and treating this person this way. Um, It's not a viable option for me to to lust. It's not a viable option for me to, to try to steal from someone. All right? And why? Because we're dead to it. And we have to consider ourselves dead to it because we are dead to it. Now, In verses 5 through 9, there are certain things that Paul says we're to put off like it were clothing. Put off certain things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, wrath, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. He goes through the whole gamut here. What we think in our hearts, what we do with our mouths, the attitudes we have in our hearts, and what we do with our hands, all of it. The, the bad stuff, the sinful stuff, is to be considered dead. So the old way of doing things is dead and ought to be treated as such. Think of it this way, um, especially given the past few years and bl- everybody blaming everything on the supply chain. Have you heard that phrase before? Oh, I'm sorry, we can't take coins. The supply chain. You know, all sorts of things. In battling sin, the supply lines have to be cut off. And when, when battling sin, you have to cut off the supply lines. That is a supply chain issue you want. You don't want to fulfill that order. You don't want that product to come to your doorstep because it's sin. And sin has to be starved out like it's a beast that needs to be starved and put to death. So sin must be besieged. That is our attitude towards it. Each of us has the responsibility to deal with sin because God's wrath in verse 6 does come upon people. I was reading in Romans 1 this morning because uh, Romans 1 is so clear on this passage about God's wrath is poured out on people, and it's done so in such a way that he gives them over to their lusts. So when you see folly paraded in the streets, that is God's wrath. That's not a time for happiness and flags and excitement and other pornographic-type things that take place in these parades. (laughs) It's, it's not a happy thing. It's a very bad thing because it's God's wrath being put on display. So, but, it, but God's wrath does come upon people. And he says, if you used to walk in these things, then lay, lay them aside. Lay them aside like old worn out clothing. Do you wish, Christian, to see the holiness of God? Then we must mortify. We must, as John Owen has taught us, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is the Christian response to sin. Kill sin, or it'll kill you. Think of it this way. Sin is actually, it's supposed to feel like a home invasion. And either you're going to protect the family, or you're going to participate in the plundering. The other reason to be killing sin in your life is so that this particular sin doesn't spill out into the covenant community, which does happen. Putting sin to death means aligning aligning oneself to that which you possess In your baptism and we're gonna come back to that later furthermore in verse 10 the Christian life is the sanctifying process whereby the old man is put off with all its sins with all its indulgences with all its lusts and the new man is put on the one who is being created verse 10 here into the full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him we are to keep remembering something It's an ongoing process we are to keep remembering that the righteous clothes have been put on us that's already been done that's that's completed you have been given the king's clothes his death and resurrection applied to you it's your clothes to wear but and that's a done by the way and even the Greek tense tells us that but it's it's a completed action it's done and over with the clothes are yours but Paul says you have to keep on remembering. You have to keep remembering oh, that those are the clothes that I don't have anymore because they're rattered and t- they're just tattered up, and they're they're just there's holes in them. They're filthy. Uh, well, I don't want them to wear those clothes. I used to wear them, and now they're trash. And I need to not try to retrieve them out of the trash can. I need to remember what I already have. That is the battle of the Christian mind. That is the battle of the Christian heart, sanctification. So the old man wants inordinate lusts and temptation. The new man wants righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And the new man is made in the image of Christ. This, this renewal, Paul calls it, once hidden, now revealed, transcends all earthly programs. That's why he goes into discussion about the uncircumcised and the circumcised, the slave and the free. The the new self tears down racial, religious, cultural, and social barriers which are constructed by the whims of men. That's in verse 11. And why? Why is all of that in Christ there's none of these categories now? Male, female, what is he getting at? Well, Christ is all and in all, he says, meaning... Christ is foremost in all things, including social and cultural barriers. So you look around the room, long before these brothers and sisters who are here, long before you have anything in common about certain practices or certain philosophies of life or whatever they are, long before that, you have a unity that transcends that. And it's a unity that you don't have to build because you have it already in Christ. That's John 17. You already have the unity. You just have to acknowledge that it's there. And that it's the first and foremost thing that binds us together is what we have in Christ. So it tears down all of those different things that we like to construct. And so Christ here, he says, is all and in all. Christ is the totality. He's the preeminence in all things, including those barriers. He dwells in his people. When you look at your neighbor, Christ is in him or her. He's there. And we need to treat them as such. Treat that person like he or she is is uh, possessing Christ, because they are. So we're dealing with social concerns here. It's not that these things go away. It's not that, you know, some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are older, some of us are younger. It's not like some of these things that we tend to see and distinguish are evaporated. It's not like they go away. But suddenly they take a back seat. Because in Christ, we have a unity that transcends all of that. So it's not that they go away, but rather they come together in the Messiah who issues a new creation identity. And and that's Paul's point here about no distinctions between certain categories like Greek or Jew or slave or freeman. This isn't a proof text for critical race theory by any means. Thus, pre-Christian categories that stem from unbelief do not belong in Christianity. Everyone stands equally at the foot of the cross. Everyone stands there equally in this regard. All of us are on our knees before the Savior. That's where we're all at. None of us are higher. None of us are, are, have a little bit more, you know, maybe like the first, second, third place, you know, tier system in the Olympics. There's none of that. We're all on our knees groveling before the Savior begging for mercy. That's what we have in Christ. Now in verses 12 through 17, we have more admonitions from the apostle. Given everything that's been said, he reminds us, here in verse 12, that we are three things. We are the elect of God, we are holy, and we are beloved. This was true of Israel, no doubt, but it was also true of Christ. And because it's true of Christ, it's true of us. We are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. We are set apart. That's what holiness is. We are set apart. And we are loved by God. God truly loves us and cares about us. Hence, we, we must put on certain things and dress ourselves accordingly. A heart of compassion. You can go down through the list with me here in verse 12. A heart of compassion, that means mercy. Um, kindness. What does Paul mean by kindness? He means Christ-like profitability and attitude towards others. You want what's best for them. You treat them in a gentle manner. And not, you're not violent towards them with your words or your attitudes, or your assumptions. You just have a... You want what's best for them. You want a profitability toward them. Um, humility. What is humility? Well, if kindness is a Christ-like attitude towards the other, humility is Christ-like attitude towards the self. Don't evaluate yourself on your own terms, right? That's, that's where pride creeps in. We need to evaluate ourselves in terms of Christ. And when we realize yeah, we're sinners and not worthy, but Christ has saved us and loved us, then we have a humble disposition. He says here, gentleness. Um, is there a meekness in transaction with others? Are we marked by gentleness, which is a, one of the, probably one of the most forgotten fruit of the Spirit? Gentleness. Which is not weakness, by the way. Patience. How do we respond to others when things get difficult? Are we patient with them? Do we try to understand or are we in a hurry? Are we patient? In verse 13, the list continues bearing with one another. How do you bear with one another? Well, you restrain any naturally visceral reaction to difficult people. When people are very challenging, when they present challenges to you, uh, are you bearing with them? Are you being patient? Are you willing to, to listen, to hear it out, or, or do you just assume and you're um, predisposed to just kind of jump on people? Are you bearing with them, though, and restraining that, having a meekness and a mildness? He says, and graciously forgiving each other. What do we do when we forgive one another? Well, we discharge, it's a judicial discharge of debts. They're, they're free from the courtroom, so don't try to drag them back into the courtroom, that's what, usually what we mean when we say when you forgive someone, you don't ever bring it up again. Because when you're bringing it up again, you're bringing charges again. And you're trying to do another trial again, which is not how it works. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. One writer said it this way, First, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. We should be dealing in terms of forgiveness because that is what Christ deals in terms of. Now that doesn't mean that trust, you know, the trust that was built that needs to be rebuilt, all that just magically fixes itself. It it doesn't. Sin does damage. But we ought to be forgiving. Again, what is true of Christ is true of us, and it ought to be true of us. Jesus, in other words, is our confession, but he's also our practice, too. The chief virtue, the crown of all virtues, that sums all of this up, the very thing that cements and invigorates any relationship, is in verse 14 the garment of love. The garment of love, the perfect bond of unity. Christians are called to a certain tolerance to put up with difficult people, cheerfully giving them undeserved grace, and they are to do so with love and self-sacrifice, willing the good of the other in all things. And then there are three final things that must be in place for any community like ours. If we take a minute to reflect on our, ourselves, our community, our church fellowship, there are three things. First, verse, verse 15, the peace of Christ is supposed to rule in your hearts. I think sometimes christians struggle with peace in their hearts we are called to this task this is what we are called to do the peace of christ must rule in our hearts we're called to this and it's the very thing that should be markedly active in a church now for peace to rule this language of rule is an interesting word for peace to rule is for peace to act as an umpire or a referee Or an arbiter in the lives of God's people when you think of a certain rule you think of a standard right like the rules of baseball the rules of basketball or football there is a rule and the referees or umpires are involved in making sure that the rules are followed correct that is what love is supposed to do in the in the people of God the peace of Christ is supposed to act as that guiding principle The peace that we have, and and what does he mean by the peace? Well, just look what else he says elsewhere. What does he say about the blood of the cross provides peace? So the hostility is over. The enmity with God is over. We have to treat each other like that's the standard because that's the standard. That is the guideline. That is the umpire. That's the referee. That is the rule that's supposed to guide our hearts. and And that's how we should deal with one another. So whatever disagreements arise in the body, it could be a family, it could be a church, and they do come, sometimes like a flood, whatever it is, peace ought to be the guardrail as we travel. You can't treat someone hostily like they're at enmity with God when they're not at enmity with God. That's why the peace rule should be there. The Pax Christiana, the peace of Christ, must mark us. And remember, either we're contributing to the peace of Christ In our families, in our churches, kids, this applies to you in dealing with your siblings. Either we're contributing to that peace or we're actually hindering it. And then we allow the dam to break and then hostility comes in like a flood. Second, verse 16, we are reminded to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this should be accompanied with wise teaching and admonishing, uh, singing and gratefulness kind of how he ends it here in this section the church is supposed to be a storehouse and a library for sound doctrine and instruction it's supposed to be a repository for answers for the world the church is supposed to function like a library in this regard the word of christ is supposed to dwell in us richly he adds the assembly of the way that is the people of god is a community with truth it's a community with service and self-sacrifice And joyful songs protruding from grateful hearts. Don't sing with God's people with this look on your face. Like you're just bored out of your mind. You get to sing to the king. Act like it, right? Be grateful in your heart. Don't don't be begrudging about it. Songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. These things should mark a Christian community. We should be excited and glad to gather as God's people to sing, to rejoice. And third, the last thing, verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, word or deed, sounds like uh, 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So how shall we then live? If you were to ask me to boil this passage down in the shortest possible way, I would I would say that Paul's main argument here is this. Baptism marks you out, believe it. That's the sum of the argument. Baptism marks you out, believe it. The language of putting off certain deeds and putting on other ones like clothing is symbolic language, it's metaphorical language, and it's tied to baptism. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, "...having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, putting off, dying, being raised up, being clothed. That's why oftentimes in baptism, people will wear like a robe of sorts or they'll change of clothes. Different traditions do things differently, but that's part of the reason why the clothes part matters in the baptism because it's, it's it's a symbol of dead in sin raised to new life being clothed with Christ. So faith faith exercised means something, and it means that you've been brought into the Messiah. Consequently, the key to Christ-centered living is making sure that your day-to-day living is informed by that which you possess in Christ. Think think about that. Your day-to-day living ought to be informed by that which you possess in Christ. Union with Christ results in you having a new covenantal status. Certain things are simply different now that Christ has marked you out. You have been given a down payment. You have been given assurance about things in the past and things yet to come in the future. Paul essentially says, you who have been baptized, Christ has given you everything, so act like it. He's given you everything, act like it. Act like that is true. He's given it to you. Consider this thought for a minute. What besetting sin do you have that you just can't seem to shake? Any on this list here? I'll give you a minute to reflect on this. Think about it. Just examine yourself. What is something that keeps creeping up in your life? What what sorts of believing, patterns of believing, which I'm putting on a scale of belief to unbelief, <laughs> what patterns of believing or lack thereof are repeatedly showing up in your life? Uh, what, what actions or fears? Perhaps there are fears that rule your heart. Fear of man. Uh, fear of being found out. Fear of... God will never forgive me if I actually try to repent. What what is it? Think about that for a minute. Now, one could ostensibly chastise oneself repeatedly, over and over again, using the law over and over again to pile on more guilt and more shame. And we in the Calvinist camp could do that repeatedly. You know, you, you get in your mind, like, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? you? You can't fix this in your life. What is wrong with you? What, why are you such a terrible person? And you that inner voice, which is not being informed by the clothing you now have in Christ, which is being informed by the, apparently the talking pile of trash clothing. That happens. And by the way, this is hardly Christian sanctification, but frankly, I believe it is what me, many evangelicals are guilty of doing. I believe that that's what the Roman Catholic Church essentially teaches people. You're on this treadmill, and you have to keep doing the right things. If you do the wrong things, just jump in the booth, you're out. And it's this view of sanctification that is self-deprecating, self-aggrandizement. It's problematic. Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't consider the law of God. Absolutely, we should. We should consider the law of God. But we must not only consider the law of God. The law does remind us of how we fall short. It does, like a mirror, tell us what's really going on in our hearts. And we need this guide. But we also need the gospel. We need to know what advantages we have in Christ. Sins will never be put to death in your life if we don't understand and abide by the benefits of Christ, his person and his work. If you spend your energies in self-abasement, never appropriating the gospel, which deals with the guilt and the shame, knowing the, the peace of Christ, knowing the forgiveness of Christ, if you've never appropriated that, but you're just constantly beating yourself up and think, I'll do better next time, I'll do better next time, I'll, I'll get it right, I'll get it right, I promise. What's wrong with you? You get on that treadmill, you won't get off. There is no treadmill. Christ ran the race already. You rest in him. You'll never put that sin to death. You'll never do it. Because you're not trying to put the sin to death. Because you don't consider yourself dead to the sin. You think somehow you're alive in it. And frankly, this is a form of pride. You thinking that you're capable in your own power and wisdom to deal with the sin. Basic question here for you. If you were capable of dealing with your sins, then why did Christ die? See, belonging to Christ puts everything in perspective. It puts everything in perspective. The gospel shows us the true nature of sin and righteousness. It shows us the purpose of creation, uh, the calling of man, what each of us are called to do. And it, it gives us the end, which is God's glory. So the gospel ties it all together because Jesus' work in history establishes a beachhead of light and righteousness in a world fallen into sin and darkness. So when you were baptized, think about your baptism. I was pondering it this week. I was baptized uh, in a pond in southern Michigan at age 10. And I remember it very vividly, that moment. Ponder your baptism. When you were baptized certain promises were communicated to you from God. Certain covenantal truths were credited to your account. And let me, I'll just say this, and I love our Baptist brothers, but they get this way wrong. Baptism isn't you showing off how amazing you were to choose Christ. And I've seen it in churches. You know, they get the mic up there. Why do you want to be baptized? Oh, I just... I want to live for Jesus you're not communicating what God communicates you're saying that baptism is your sign to choose if how and when you want to prove to God something which is actually quite arrogant because you're robbing God's sign which signifies something very real very covenantal and you're acting like it's about you So, no, it doesn't show off how amazing you were to choose Christ. Baptism is the covenant sign and seal given to you. It's not something that you give to God, it's a promise from God to bring you into the fullness of God's blessing. That's what Paul means by setting your mind in the heavens and not on thing, things of the earth. Here's what he's saying here Retrieve what you need to live on this earth from the armory of heaven. Retrieve what you need to live your life with the purpose God has given you here on this earth, in all facets of life, retrieve it from the armory of heaven. That's where Christ is. Your life is there. What you need from God is there. That's where you go to retrieve it. And I, I think that most people who struggle with putting certain deeds to death do so because they simply do not feel the weight of what we already have in Christ, we like to think of sanctification as our own its our own deal, like, oh yeah, Jesus died for me, great, now I gotta get my act together. Now, your act needs to be put together, but it has to be put together from the fact that Jesus has put it together, not you're going to put it together. The doctrine of sanctification, in other words, must be driven by the gospel. Yes, you need to know your sin, but you need to know your savior. And you need to know him deeply and intimately and experientially. You need to know him. You need to cry before him. With tears of gratefulness, sorrow, joy. You need to know that you have died with Christ, that you've been buried with Christ, that you have been raised up with him. You need to know that covenantally speaking, though we are still in a sin-sick world, King Jesus is actively working, sanctifying his bride, of which you are a member He is at work doing it. We need to know that covenantally speaking, we have already been raised up with Christ, identified with Jesus, and that we await a final future bodily resurrection. Yes, we consider our members of our earthly body dead to sexual sins, sins of the tongue, sins of the heart. That's what he covers here. We're in Christ, which means we're dead to them. If you're in Christ, you're dead to those things. And they should be dead to us. Do you want to live a Christ-centered life? Then consider certain truths. What Paul says in verse 5 about considering ourselves dead to sin ought to be understood to mean that our pursuit of mortification, killing sin, is based on the fact that those sins are powerless. They are powerless. And let me tell you, these sins only have power over our lives when we give them power. You are trying to resurrect a dead animal. You're trying to. When we give ourselves to those sins, pride, lust, unrighteous anger, fear of man, malice, sexual sins, when we give ourselves, so we're trying to raise that dead animal up to give us power. They're powerless. And these sins, by the way, don't miss this. These sins arise in hearts, they don't just happen, they arise in hearts. And when we fail to see that our task is to put those powerless idols to rest, we begin to entertain them. And rather than killing them where they lie, we try to bring them alive. We try to resurrect them and making them alive more than they really are. And I want to close with this question. What adorns the Christian whose identity is secured in Christ? What adorns the Christian whose identity is secured in Christ? What should adorn the Christian whose identity is secure in Christ? First, in Christ we have a new wardrobe. No need for further shopping, all right? You don't need anything else. Put on these clothes and wear them with a humble confidence. You have a new wardrobe, wear it. Don't go back to the trash can for those tattered and broken holy clothes. Holy, not in the H-O-L-Y sense. (laughs) Be at home with righteousness because in Jesus you are at home. You're seated with him. Second, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we can put on these clothes because this is who we have been made to be. You have been made to be this way. You have been made to dress this way. The second Adam has upended the works of evil from the first Adam. So you have what you need in Christ. So remember this. Give attention to it always. Remember, you have the wardrobe. Wear it. Third, we must put on love. And make sure that the peace of Christ is our rule. Christ's lordship, emphasized here in Colossians, it does imply for the believer that there is a rule of conduct which is coupled with a sober attitude. There is a standard, and there's an attitude about the standard that we need to cultivate. So we must consciously reflect on whether or not we're doing this in these, these things in word and deed, right, in the name of Jesus, or are we doing them in our own names, So one's actions within the community are either done in love or they're done in envy. They're accomplished with peace, ruling the situation, or pride. Finally, the word of Christ, the gospel message with all the theology that comes in tow, must dwell in us, it must. Christ-centered living is the pursuit of Christ through a transformed mind informed by the scriptures. You wanna live a Christ-centered life? then make sure your mind is informed and transformed. The renewing, Paul speaks of in Romans 12:1, it must be informed by the scriptures. You need to dwell in the scriptures so the scriptures can dwell in you. And when this happens, we are opening ourselves to the storehouses of heaven, and there are plenty of treasures to go around. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have been kind to us in sending the Lord Jesus. I pray that your spirit would remind us each and every day just how incredibly um, blessed we are you have marked us out in baptism you have clothed, clothed us in righteousness and I pray that you would teach us may your spirit um, point us back to the word may we dwell in this word of Christ richly remind us each day when faced with adversity or or conflict um, or trial or suffering whatever it is remind us that we have what we need in you jesus we have what we need so father we glorify you now as we sing um, as we partake of communion as we're commissioned into the world i pray lord that this year 2023 would be a year of incredible advancements for the kingdom may your spirit bring repentance and then revival and then reformation